0: Our reading is from the Gospel of Mark, and from chapter 15, verse 42, through to verse 8 of chapter 16. It says this, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb That had been cut out of rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb he is not here. See the place where the leaden, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Johnny.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, let me uh, join with Derek in wishing you a very happy Resurrection Sunday morning. Uh, my name is Johnny, as Derek mentioned. If we haven't met before, uh, I hope that we can maybe rectify that today. Please do come and say hello after the service. And it is also uh, just worth uh, taking the chance to thank all of you as a church family for your kindness towards uh, our little family. Since our girl, uh, little girl, Karis, arrived two weeks ago, we are all here uh, this morning just about, if in uh, body, if not quite in, in spirit, uh, completely. If you hear a little one squawking during the sermon, that's most likely her, and uh, she's only saying what you'll all be thinking, having to listen to me for half an hour. Uh, now, fittingly, for Easter Sunday morning, we are going to spend some time thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Matthew, uh, sorry Mark chapter 14, uh, 15 and 16, I'll get there. Uh, but before we do that, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help for all of us and for me as I speak. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise you as one who has revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. And we ask that as we think on those scriptures together over the next few minutes, you would please help each one of us to see clearly. To clearly see and understand what your word says, what it tells us about you. And to see clearly what the implications of that truth is for each one of us. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory. And we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we are smack bang in the middle of the Easter holidays, one week in and one week left to go. And uh, for some of us here, that means that this might be around and about the time you're starting to run low on activities to keep children entertained. Uh, I uh, stumbled across one suggested activity this week that might come in handy. It is to write your own story ending. Uh, The idea is this. You you walk a little one through a familiar story, maybe a, a folk story or a fairy tale, and when you're nearing the end... You let them bring things to the conclusion they would like to see. And if you try it, it's actually quite a satisfying activity, whether young or old, because you can kind of tie off any loose ends in the story. You can make things quite a bit neater. But I'll confess some of the suggested endings that were given in the article I was reading seemed a little bit grown up to me, if I'm honest. The three little pigs go into the home security business was one suggestion. Another was that Goldilocks and the three bears open an Airbnb together. It seems that whoever came up with the idea was pretty commercially minded. But rather than letting the children Children have all of the fun, I want to ask you to go through a similar process this morning for a moment or two. I want to ask you to think about how you would end a particular story if you were writing it. It is Easter Sunday, and for us as a church family, it's the final Sunday in our series in the book of Mark, which we started together last October. And I do just wonder If you were to make up your own ending to the story in the gospel of Mark, how would it go? How would you finish things? I wonder if part of it might chime with what Mark has actually written. That after the horrors of Good Friday, on Easter Sunday, we read Mark chapter 16, verse 6. He has risen. He is not here. The tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. It's wonderful news, but I wonder if it might sound like a bit of a fairy tale ending to some of us, a bit like wish fulfillment and nothing more than that. But though, in one sense, the story in Mark finishes quite happily, in another sense, it's actually quite chaotic. I wonder if you felt that as we read the story a few minutes ago. Just scan over the final few verses again with me. In verse 7. We see that Jesus' closest followers, his disciples, aren't there at all in this closing scene. Why is that? Well, because as we saw a couple of weeks ago, they all deserted Jesus as he was taken to be crucified. We read on to verse 8. Some women hear that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and their response, verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They run away in fear. And that isn't how the script is meant to go, is it? We're left with what might feel at best like a bit of an anticlimax, and at worst, like a deeply unsettling ending to Mark's account. And yet, what we're going to see this morning is that that isn't an accident. See, the reason for the apparent anticlimax is that Mark isn't giving us a, a, a fairy tale or a Hollywood ending as much as that might be how some of us tend to think of the story. It is a happy conclusion, but it is also a chaotic one, unapologetically so. An unsettling one, even. And that's because, well, it isn't a fairy tale at all. It is true, and because it is true, it is, in one sense, deeply unsettling. And we're going to have a think about that under our first heading this morning. Next slide, please, Samuel. Thank you. Jesus literally died and rose again. Now, in the the, the write-your-own-story examples I gave a moment or two ago, the, the three pigs and Goldilocks, both of them are children's stories, fairy tales, if you like, and I chose children's stories or fairy tales quite deliberately because I wonder if that might intuitively be the kind of category or genre into which some of us might tend to slot the resurrection. That's the case in general in our culture, I think the resurrection is often understood to be a happy folk story, but nothing more than that. And actually, viewing the resurrection like that has has implications for what we do with the rest of the Christian faith. I've got a friend who describes his belief system as being Christian, but with a little bit of Buddhism thrown in. His is a a sort of a pick-and-mix view of the world, really. And you see, if the resurrection is a fable, if it's a fairy story, well, then you can get away with that. You can pick and choose which parts of the Christian faith to hold on to and which parts to discard. But in order to get away with that, you actually have to ignore what the primary texts actually say. Let me just show you that in Mark's account. Because firstly, Mark goes out of his way to show us that on Good Friday, Jesus was dead and buried. I wonder if you spotted that. Just notice as I read all of the the dead or body words that Mark uses at the end of chapter 15. Read along with me from chapter 15, verse 43. It, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. He learned from the centurion that he was dead he granted the corpse to Joseph. Just note, the references aren't to Jesus as a person at this point, but to his body as an inanimate thing. The exchange between Pilate and the centurion make the same point. They double-check the body to make sure that Jesus is no longer alive, and that is the case. He is no longer alive as far as they're concerned. After all of that, we're told, one of Jesus' followers, Joseph, takes the body, and wraps it ready for burial. And you have to imagine that that if Joseph notices any signs of life during that process, as he's physically handling the body, if he feels a pulse, if he notices some shallow breathing, then he's going to stop doing what he's doing. There is no sense that Jesus is badly wounded and, and, and perhaps just needs some rest before he'll come round again. On Good Friday... We are dealing with a corpse. Jesus is definitely dead and buried. And with that being established by the end of chapter 15, just look on with me to chapter 16. Where uh, on Easter Sunday, the woman who'd seen him being buried in the tomb on the Friday returned to the same tomb to anoint the body. And to their surprise, they arrived to find that the stone that had covered the entrance to the tomb had been rolled away. A man dressed in white tells them that Jesus is not there, but has risen. See the place where they laid him, he says, or in other words, come have a look for yourselves. It's fairly clear that the tomb, the same tomb that had been occupied on the Friday night, is now, on Sunday morning, empty. And there is just one final detail worth noticing. I wonder how you would expect those women to react as they find out that the tomb is empty and that Jesus has risen. What do you imagine they'll do? Of course, it's it's quite possible they'll celebrate with, with the news that the nightmare of the past couple of days is over. But I wonder what you would do. If it were me, well, I suspect I'd probably react in exactly the same way the women do. Verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid, trembling, astonishment, and fear. Now that is a, a chaotic ending, isn't it? It is unsettling. And yet that's exactly the point. See, the events being described are extraordinary but there's no attempt to pretend that they aren't extraordinary is there the woman's reaction is exactly as we might expect in fact fear and confusion and that's just as it should be in one sense because frankly people don't just rise from the dead and yet according to mark that is just what jesus did And that means that each one of us, well, we have to reckon with that. We have to do something with it. I am well aware that the idea of someone being physically resurrected from the dead doesn't fit very neatly within a a rational Western worldview. And so you might have heard, as I certainly have, the Easter story being explained in, in, in one of a number of different ways. It's a metaphor, some people have said, of spring. That after the darkness of the winter season, there is hope. A new life, and actually, I suspect that message will be proclaimed by lots of people in lots of different churches around our country today. But I hope you can see that, at the very least, the Bible authors will not let us get away with that. They present the resurrection as historical, as something that did really happen, that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And can I please just say this morning that if it did happen, as they posit it did, then frankly, you should find it unsettling. It should shake you. should make you revisit all of your assumptions about Jesus and who he claimed to be, about the world and your view of it, and even your assumptions about your own life and purpose. People don't just rise from the dead, and so if Jesus Christ did... Well, then you can't take bits and pieces of his teaching and blend them with another worldview, as as my friend does. No, you have to sit up and pay attention to what the death-defeating Jesus actually says. Now, if you've never thought about that before and you've got questions about it this morning, then in one sense, as well you might... We'd be very, very pleased to speak through any of those with you, to listen to questions and objections. Please do grab me after the service or speak to the person who brought you along this morning. But that is the first thing it's worth us noticing this morning, that Jesus physically rose from the dead. But so far we've considered the idea that the resurrection is is true news. Extraordinary, but true But Mark doesn't just hold it out as as being extraordinary news. He also wants us to see that it is good news. And he clearly tells us that it is. You might remember back if you were here to the start of our series in Mark, in in, in Mark chapter 1 verse 1. Mark said that his account is the gospel, which means good news of Jesus Christ. Which begs the question, in what way is the resurrection good news? I mean, it it clearly was to his first century followers. It meant that they would ultimately get to see him again. But what difference does it make to you and to me that Jesus is alive? Well, We'll see that under our next heading. It means that he offers good news of forgiveness, even for failures. Now, uh, the story of the 20th century wrote one historian is the story of dictatorships. Uh, Multiple dictators came to power during the last century and and came to shape the course of world history, from Lenin and Stalin in the Soviet Union, to to Franco in Spain, and of course Hitler in Germany, all the way through to more recent dictatorships, Ceausescu in Romania, or or Mugabe in Zimbabwe. Uh, The who's who of political movers and shakers in the 20th century makes for pretty troubling reading, doesn't it? What's perhaps even more troubling than that list, though, are the multiple stories of people, ordinary people, who complied with those regimes. Stories in the Soviet Union of rank and file citizens who were so keen to distance themselves from danger that they stood by and did nothing while neighbour after neighbour disappeared in the night. Stories of apparently ordinary people who in Nazi Germany ratted out friends and family members to state authorities in the hope that they would be spared themselves. And and the thought of those ordinary people might be troubling for each of us in different ways. Troubling, firstly, that people can be so callous towards their fellow human beings. But perhaps even more troubling because, well, when we examine our own hearts and our own lives, we can't help but wonder what we would do in those circumstances or situations, whether we would take a costly stand with people in their time of need or whether we too would buckle. Now, I'm aware that might not be the kind of upbeat message you were expecting to hear when you came along to an Easter Sunday service, but I make no apologies for putting things on a bit of a downer because that is a big part of the dynamic at play in the closing chapters of Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel. We saw last Sunday, didn't we, in Mark 14 and 15, that Jesus was arrested by Jewish authorities. And as he was arrested, we read an unsettling thing about Jesus' closest followers. Chapter 14, verse 50. They all left him and fled. As their friend, their master, faced his darkest hour, Jesus' followers tucked tail and ran. And if that was troubling, well, things only really got worse from then on in. After uh, he had been arrested, Jesus was forced to stand trial in a kangaroo court. And as that hearing was taking place, we read about Peter. Uh, And of all of Jesus' followers, Peter was really one of the brightest lights, one of the closest to him. Peter alone, it seemed, had stuck with Jesus in his hour of need. Until during Jesus' trial... Peter was quizzed by a servant girl about his relationship to Jesus. Chapter 14, verse 67. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Three times Peter denied Jesus and failed to stand with him in his hour of need. And just as the thought of ordinary people complying with with malevolent state regimes through the 20th century might make us feel uneasy, well, that too is unsettling, isn't it? That that, that Jesus' followers, that even Peter, were willing to abandon and to betray their friend, their, their master, Jesus. And yet, we needn't wonder what we would have done in those circumstances because the disciples generally, and Peter in particular, hold a mirror up to how each one of us have treated Jesus. And of course, we haven't denied him in exactly the same way. We weren't there on that first Good Friday. But we have all denied him. have chosen self-preservation and self-interest over identifying with him. Perhaps you're a Christian this morning and you know that kind of denial all too well. When there's been a conversation in the staff room or with a group of friends about a hot button issue that's been in the news and someone turns to you and says, what do you think about it? You're one of those Christians, aren't you? You guys are meant to have an opinion on this kind of thing. And suddenly your tongue swells up to about five times its usual size. Every ounce of moisture that was ever there disappears and you bottle it. You try and evade the question, or you change the subject. Or perhaps the, the denial that comes to your mind isn't, isn't a failure in loyalty. It's a moral denial. Knowing how Jesus would have you live. Knowing the kind of life he has called you to, but failing to live like that. We have all denied Jesus, and Mark has been shining a spotlight on that. Now, it's just possible that as I'm talking, you're feeling a a bit defensive about that idea. No, I'm not perfect, you might think, but I haven't done any real harm in my life. I've never wronged God and let him down. In fact, I'm much better even than half the religious people I know. But you see, that's where the punch of Mark's account really lands home. Because doing wrong by God doesn't just look like egregious moral failure, as we might understand it in our culture. Doing wrong by God fundamentally looks like a rejection of him and his king. A refusal to identify with him. That's something that even one of his closest followers, Peter, failed to do. And it's a denial of which all of us are guilty But, I said this was good news. And good news it is. Because Mark doesn't just shine a spotlight on our own denials. He also shows us what to do with them. Or rather, he shows us what God will do with them. What do I mean? Well, just fast forward with me to Easter Sunday morning. The young man dressed in white addresses the woman at the tomb. And notice what he tells them. Just look with me at verse 7 but go tell his disciples and peter that he is going before you to galilee there you will see him just as he told you now I want you to imagine for a moment that i was somewhere else today that i, I couldn't make it here for some reason But imagine I needed to get a message to everyone here in this room somehow. And so I sent a messenger. And as I told the messenger what to say, I said, go and tell the church family at Hebron and be sure and tell Derek. Sorry to pick on you, brother. But that would be a slightly strange thing to say, wouldn't it? Because Derek is clearly part of the church family. I don't need to name check him to include him. He's in the room. But I wonder if you notice that's just what the young man does. Verse 7, go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter's one of the disciples. He's included in that group. Why single him out especially? Well, because I think the last time we saw Peter, he was letting Jesus down, distancing himself from him, failing to identify with him, denying him in his hour of need. And right out of the gate, after the resurrection, there is an olive branch. More like an olive tree than an olive branch, in fact. The point being made, I think, is that Jesus died and rose again, and that he did so even for people like Peter. In fact, he would do so in order to mend what Peter had broken. And all of that just double underlines why I think the resurrection of Jesus is such good news. Just think back to the 20th century dictatorships and the ordinary people who abandoned their friends to those evil regimes in order to save their own skin. Imagine that after being abandoned, one of those abandoned friends somehow manages to escape. And they they, they evade the clutches of that evil regime and they return to visit the people who'd ratted them out. How do you expect that encounter to go? You betrayed me. You threw me under the bus. I thought you were my friend. I want nothing to do with you anymore. And that might be how we would imagine Jesus would treat his disciples or treat us for our failure of him. For our failure in loyalty to him when things got tough. Failure to stick with him morally. Failures which we might well have repeated again. And again and again, the response we expect to hear from God in the face of those failures is, you betrayed me. You abandoned me. You had your chance to prove yourself and you blew it. I want nothing to do with you now. And listen, in one sense, that is exactly how he should treat us. And yet... Those two words in Mark chapter 16, possibly some of the sweetest in the whole book, are glimmers of hope, aren't they? And Peter. Tell Peter, go to Peter, remember him. The point is not that Peter's failings didn't matter. It's not that they weren't a big deal or that they weren't harmful. It's that they've been paid for. But as Jesus rose from the dead, he reaches out to Peter, failing Peter, to mend that broken relationship. And listen, the same can be true of any one of us. We have each denied God. We have failed him. And listen, if your conscience doesn't attest to that, then the Bible certainly does. And yet, we needn't bury those feelings and wait for our sense of shame to dispel with the passage of time. We needn't just work harder to try and make things up to God again. No, we can come to Him in full acknowledgement of our weakness and our failing and our denial. And we can ask His forgiveness with confidence that He will forgive anyone who asks. Why? Well, because Jesus died and he rose again. Isn't that just a wonderful thing? Now, if you have never done that before, let me ask you directly this morning. Will you do it today? There is no better day to do it, and there is no better time to do it than now. The resurrection of Jesus is good news of forgiveness even for failures. And listen, that means every single one of us. Now, we are nearing an end. But just before we close, we've given quite a few months of our lives to thinking about Mark as a church family. And though it's Easter Sunday, I just wanted to very briefly reflect on one of the big ideas We've learned from our time in Mark before we close. And we're going to do that very briefly under our final heading. It makes answering Jesus' call to follow him the only reasonable thing to do. Now, a little known fact, I used to play the trumpet in secondary school very, very badly before anyone thinks about signing me up to any music rotas. And from from pretty much day one, I can remember being urged to practice my scales by family members and by music teachers. Some of you might have had that kind of experience yourselves. But the problem was I wasn't all that interested in the scales. I wanted to skip past the tricky stuff and to go straight from being unable to play a note on the trumpet at all to being an expert jazz trumpeter. It seemed a fairly reasonable thing uh, to want until one day during a lesson, my trumpet teacher started playing his way up and down some scales. He started very slowly. I thought he was just warming up at first and he got faster and faster and faster. And by the end, he was soaring his way up and down, up and down with fingers moving more quickly than I thought was possible. It was extraordinary. I can only do that, he said as he finished because I stuck at it with my scales. I suggest you do the same. See, when it comes to doing something difficult, there's often a big difference, isn't there, between being told that it will ultimately be worth it and being shown it ultimately is worth it. And if you'll excuse the pun, that is the final note that rings out in Mark's Gospel. One of the big takeaways in Mark's gospel, certainly as we've moved into this second half in recent weeks, has been Jesus' call to follow him. And it is a costly call, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus means taking up a cross. And that's probably been the biggest challenge to me personally from studying Mark, if I'm honest, and all the various implications of what that looks like in day-to-day life. But though it is challenging, Jesus has been persuasive in telling us why it's the reasonable thing to do. We will all lose our lives, he has said. That much is inevitable. And so when it comes to following Jesus, the question is not, will you lose your life? It is, When? Will you lose your life? Will you commit it all to Jesus now, laying it down in His service, and ultimately keep it for eternity? Or will you try and hold on to it now, and ultimately lose your life in eternity? It is persuasive logic, and yet I wonder if you might still need some convincing. We can come to doubt it, can't we? What I can see and and feel and enjoy now seems so much more certain than what I'm being promised in the future. And so staking your life on something you can't even touch might seem like a bit of a gamble. Well, if that resonates with you, then what happens at the end of Mark's gospel is an absolute game-changer. Because you see, the empty tomb is not just being told that following Jesus will be worth it, like being told you should practice your scales because it'll be worth it. It's being shown. It is vindication. It's proof of the shape of Jesus' life. Cross now, resurrection later. Suffering now, glory later. See, following Jesus does mean taking up a cross does mean standing with him, even when it's costly to do so, costly for your reputation, costly in your relationships, costly in your finances, and your standard of living. But, he says, it will also mean one day rising with him in glory. And I don't want you just to take my word for that. I want you to take the evidence of the empty tomb. And so let me just ask you, as you draw to a conclusion for Resurrection Sunday morning, if, draw to a conclusion in Mark's gospel, in fact, if you will follow him, will give your life over to him now, hook, line, and sinker, costly though that may be, denying self and taking up a cross. Because listen, he has not just told you that it is worth it, persuasive though that is. he has shown you. Christ has risen and as we take up our crosses to follow him and so one day shall we let's pray together God and Father we thank you and we praise you this morning for the wonderful news Of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is a historical event. That it really did happen. And we thank you that because it did really happen. It is profoundly meaningful. It means good news of forgiveness. Forgiveness even for failures like us. If we will only take hold of that forgiveness. And seek it by asking you. And it means vindication. Proof of that pattern that Jesus calls us to follow. Cross now, resurrection to come. Suffering now, glory to come. And so, Lord, we ask that for those of us who don't yet believe in the resurrection, you would please convince us of the truth of it. And for those of us who do, who do believe in the resurrection, would you please grant us even greater certainty that we would walk in the freedom of the forgiveness of failures for such as us, and that we would walk as faithful followers of the Lord Jesus, denying selves, taking up a cross, and following you, knowing that the cross will surely be followed by the resurrection? We ask all of these things for our joy and for your glory, and do so in Jesus' name. Amen.